This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Ava Chin discusses her book, Mott Street, a Chinese-American family's story of exclusion and homecoming. She reflects on her family's American experience across five generations and the impact the Chinese Exclusion Act had on her family and community. She's interviewed by Yale University American Studies and History professor Mary Liu. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's a really delightful to be with you and to talk about your new book, Mott Street. It covers such a wide um, amount of time and space. It, it was really a riveting read. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Thank you. It's really so great to be here with you. Yeah, I would love to start by just simply asking about the research project itself. Um, you know, being a historian, I was just fascinated by all the different kinds of things that you were looking at from the official records housed in the National Archives, newspapers, census records, um, family photographs, all of it. And it sounded like from the way you described the process, you you basically been researching this family history for a very long time. So maybe you could start by taking us back to when you start to first think about writing a family history or researching your family history and what brought you there. Sure, absolutely. Thank you. And I just want to um, say that Mott Street is about the impact of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws on four generations of my family in New York's Chinatown um, as we landed out in the American West, then did a reverse migration across country before eventually landing in the same tenement apartment building in the heart of New York City on Mott Street. And it really is about my journey to understand my family and then how I uncovered so much more. So you're absolutely right that this book goes back so far in terms of my own genesis as a young person growing up as a fifth-generation Chinese-American in New York. I was estranged from my father, uh, raised by a single mom, so I didn't know my dad's side of the family. And yet, I also, I did know that I was a descendant, I'm a proud descendant, of a Chinese railroad worker. And so a lot of the stories that I heard growing up, they were not reflected in the history books that I read or the lessons that I was taught when I was in school. And so part of the impetus of this book was really to try to rectify, you know, the, the family stories with what I was learning. 
Um, so to get back to your question about the research, I would say that – so the short answer is that I started researching this book from 2015 onwards. Like that from 2015 onwards, it was my sole project. But in actuality – I've been collecting these stories ever since I was a child. And one of the first stories I ever heard was about my great-great-grandfather who worked on the nation's first transcontinental railroad, um, which united the country after the Civil War. Um, so, so, so there were those oral stories that I heard that were so compelling to me um, as a young person. And... Um, but then there was the research, uh, the, to answer your research question, there was the research that happened as an adult. Um, we can kind of take this in several stages because I know that um, some of the research that I did uh, happened in the 90s um, in a local archive in New York, uh, which had its genesis as the uh, Chinatown History Project, then became the Chinatown History Museum. Um, and back in the 90s, when I discovered that my Chin grandfather, who I did not know growing up because I was estranged from that side of the family, I knew from his obituary that he had an oral history at the museum. And all the way back then, I was in search of that oral history. I did not get my hands on that oral history until some 20-something years later. Um, but I, I can say I would love to give a shout-out to all of the many people who are working in local archives, um, particularly archives for marginalized communities um, where larger museums are not saving uh, these important archives of individuals um, who have important stories to tell. Um, if, if those young, budding historians did not do that work back then, I don't think I could have done you know, significant sections of this book. So it's a shout out to those folks. And I know that you as well um, used to work at that museum. Am I correct, Professor Liu? Yes. Yeah. That was the amazing piece of this was that when I picked up the book and saw Mott Street as the title, I had a feeling I would be familiar with much of what you were talking about, but I didn't, I didn't realize how familiar I would be. And the oral history you talk about with your grandfather, Long Chin, or Pop Chin, as we knew him back then, yep. um, was something that I actually did a counter when I was in the museum back then. Um, so yeah, when I started from 1980, to about, uh, sorry, 1989, till about early 1990s, maybe, we were n the New York Chinatown History Project. And as you said, we became um, the Chinatown History Museum for a minute. And now it's now known as the Museum of Chinese in the Americas. <laughs> yes. uh, but that's, yeah, that's an incredible intersection of lives and stories and research, which I think that's what a lot of your book is about, is these incredible intersections that until you dig into them, you don't realize they're happening. And you're having us, you know, crisscross across the country as much as staying um, on Mott Street in terms of unraveling this history. Um, so just to get back to some of the amazing things that you're telling us, so which, which grandfather is it that you knew had a history that went back to 
um, the Transcontinental Railroad. So this was through my grandpa, Jean, uh, Jean Wong, mm-hmm. uh, who was the amazing gourmand uh, in our family who cooked up amazing meals for us. Um, and he told me incredible stories um, about our railroad ancestor. Um, the railroad was so important to our family, uh, not just because of the work that was accomplished that helped, you know, bridge this divide between East and West uh, so that, um, you know, from coast to coast, the country was united physically. Um, but within our own family, there was so much pride about the fact that my great-great-grandfather had worked on and and, and labored. um, And the labor was so intense, right? So many men died. So many Chinese men gave up their lives, right, Um, to complete this railroad. And, you know, my great-great-grandfather survived. um, And uh, there was so much pride uh, in the story that he taught his grandson, my grandfather, um, his first words in English, which were um, the names of the Transcontinental Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so those were some of the first family stories that I ever heard, um, and I found them nothing short of inspiring. Um, in my research, um, I did go back uh, to the to where the railroad was completed. Um, Uh, in Promontory, Utah. I also went to Boise, Idaho, where my railroad working ancestor ended up living for almost 30 years um, in a period in time in which the state population of Idaho was almost 30 percent Chinese. So, um, you know, uncovering these stories um, was, was so personally moving for me but it also spoke to something larger that was happening uh, in the U.S. at the time um, that sparked my imagination, uh, but also made me realize that there was a great big gaping hole um, in terms of the history that I was taught. And if I wasn't taught this history as a young child, I might not have really known about it if I was just going about my business being a student. Yes, and one of the things that I think is so powerful in the book is that this is not a straightforward narrative about your family. It's just as much about you uncovering that history and the ways in which there are surprises along the way, some of it very inspiring in terms of um, your ancestors who we get to meet and spend time with, but some extremely heartbreaking and difficult pieces of history to read about. Um, do you want to say something about that? What, it, what was it like to go through these histories where you're reading so much about um, the anti-Chinese movement, whether it was political rallies or violence um, versus, um, you know, finding these moments of your ancestors in the archives and and really celebrating their longevity, their survival, their thriving, you know. So I wanted to hear a little bit about that. Sure. So, you know, this was not the easiest book 
to research. Um, some of the, to get back to your question about uh, research, there were times in which I had to, I, I crisscrossed my way across the country um, to local national archives offices. Um, there are there are Chinese Exclusion Act files on all of the different members of my family um, it, during that period. I should also maybe go back and, and maybe uh, qualify. You know, the Chinese Exclusion Act laws um, started in the in the 19th century in the 1882, and it lasted for over 60 years. It only ended off the books during World War II when the U.S. entered World War II and we needed China as an ally. So it's a really long period of time that we're talking about. And so there were files on all of the family members who came in. Um, and so, um, oh, I should also say um, that Chinese exclusion was the first major federal immigration restriction um, that effectively shut the borders for the very first time against any particular nationality. It halted our legal immigration into this country and blocked a pathway towards our citizenship for over 60 years. It was also important because it set the tone for future immigration restrictions going forward, so that by 1924, there was a ban on nearly all Asians from coming over and restrictions against Southern and Eastern Europeans as well. All right. So um, during this period in time, there are these files on all of my family members. And so I go, um, you know, from uh, for, for the last seven years, I was like going off and trying to find individual files on all of the members. And some people had files across, you know, three different uh, in three different cities across the country. Um, so it, it was a it was a it was a bit of a detective hunt to try to to locate all of these but what i realized very quickly is that a lot of the files were a pure kind of fiction right they were a fiction because the immigration restrictions were so stringent that they became a kind of it became necessary for folks in order to try to get in um, to create a kind of story about their own identity, right? Claiming that they were, um, you know, somebody else's son, so and so's son, um, or so and so's brother, um, and so, you know, these files, um, uncovering them and uncovering my grandfather's file, Grandpa Jean, the descendant of the railroad worker, um, and realizing that it it was such a fiction. Uh, the only thing was tr- that was true was the town in which uh, he was born. Um, it it led it led me to realize that in fact, you know, writers and historians. We're trained to see the official documents um, and the official history, um, things that are written down on paper, as having um, uh, a greater importance than the family stories. But what I soon realized is that when it comes to Chinese exclusion, it's the family stories that hold the keys to the truth. And the official documents that are are kind of fabulous fiction um, that you have to kind of um, read against the grain for. And so the process of working on this book 
was um, was like like ju- like dealing with three different intersections of dealing with the family stories, looking at the official documents, um, English language newspapers of the period, and my own trying to come up with my best my best guess of what really actually happened, what was the actual truth as my family members knew it. Yeah, that's something that um, is very, very difficult to do using the kinds of sources you're using, Um, especially it sounds like from what I saw, the majority of the sources are are English sources, uh, and many of them are these official state-documented sources that you're describing, like like immigration records, border crossing records, um, certificate, citizen uh, residency certificates, et cetera, that are that are produced for a certain purpose, but not necessarily um, more about surveillance and, and tracking for the state than it is necessarily about telling any kind of truth about a person's life. And um, so it's difficult to use those kinds of sources, and newspapers are certainly not, not much better, especially right. when we're dealing with 19th century newspapers. That's right. Um, that That's often right. are quite sensationalist. Yeah. Yes, yes, that reflect the, the viewpoints, the discriminatory viewpoints of the day, right? Um, I will say mm-hmm. that um, for my, chi- my Chinese language sources, um, I went back to our villages, and I was able to get the genealogy documents. Um, there were genealogies um, on three of the major families that I was researching. And um, so so uh, I used those. They, they, what was great about those is that they not just had names, um, sometimes dates, so years of birth um, and years of death, but sometimes I was lucky and they had narratives that came with them. Um, so narratives about different family members, um, narratives that I later learned inspired my family members who were here. Um, so I was able to write, use that. Um, we, I did use some Chinese language sources um, when uh, I, so, so in 2017, um, I won a Fulbright to China. And so I took my whole family with me um, and we lived there. And that's where I did a bulk of the international research. Um, and so I did use some, uh, I went to the national, I went to the, the local archives um, there in our region um, and was able to um, sort of call information for that. But you're absolutely right that the majority Majority of the actual documents themselves um, for this book really uh, were um, English language sources. Uh, you know, census. Um, you know, I I, I used uh, you know a couple of well, different historians and journalists um, wrote amazing accounts of things that happened um, in early Chinatown of my period, um, including your book. Um, was a great source for me. So thank you for that. I can officially thank you on television for, for doing that work. <laughs> so thank you. Um, and, and, and yeah, so, so a large part of it was English language sources, but um, there were Chinese language sources as well. And of course, all of the oral histories and the myriad numerous interviews that I did with um, family members as well as folks who um, are former residents of Mott Street um, and former residents of Chinatown.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So I, I do want us to talk more, uh, more about, I, as much as I love talking about the research, and I just can't help it as the historian in me, but you have you have such amazing family stories, and I just... Um, would love to talk a little bit more about those, and in particular, you're you're really tracing out three. I, th- I think it's three. Is it three? Um, you have the Chins, you have the Wongs, um, and the Ang family, uh, the Ang Doshim family. Yes, they're the really Angs. Yeah. Yes. The, yes, yeah, yeah. So you've got the three families going, and I just wanted to have you talk through what it was like you know, unraveling and then trying to put together the narratives of these three different families. Um, and just say a little bit about who the three of three families are, were and are. Sure. So the three families that I'm dealing with are um, my paternal chin side, um, as well as my maternal side, um, my maternal grandmother's family, the Ang family, um, and my uh, my mother's family, uh, her father's family, uh, the Wong family. Um, and what was so interesting about working on this project was that because I'm fifth generation Chinese American. There are, and my family goes back to the mid nineteenth century. Any any major iteration of um, things that impacted Chinese Americans from the mid nineteenth century to today, I was able to write about these um, historic um, and uh, historic sociopolitical events that impacted the community through the lens of various family members, just because we've been here for so long. So Mm -hmm. I felt like I was really, really fortunate. Um, Now, the downside, of course, is that I had a ton, a cast of characters to deal with, right? And so many people I found completely fascinating, right? So it was the railroad worker, the grandson of the railroad worker. Um, on the Wong side, I've got um, my my Ang side, right? Um, and Dek Foon, right, who was the first person who came over from my grandmother's side of the family, enters the country just two or three years after the Chinese Exclusion Act is in full effect. Um, he flees the West Coast during a period of very intense, heightened anti-Chinese sentiment, right? Lands in New York City, um, you know, finds this burgeoning um, Chinatown, this thriving Chinatown, right, that really came about um, not just for because of language and cultural ties, right? But but Chinatowns across the country um, became a place of refuge for Chinese people um, when dealing with the weight and scrutiny of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws. So 
Deck Foon um, does this amazing civic engagement where um, he's working with other Chinese Americans to fight and to, to speak out against the Chinese Exclusion Act laws and their continuation. Um, he ends up marrying um, a white woman, uh, our Aunt Elva, who, um, you know, uh, only a couple of years after they get married, the government revokes Aunt Elva's citizenship because there's a period in time in which the government thought and believed that a woman's citizenship should change to reflect that of her husband's. So only a couple of years after getting married to our Uncle Deck, Aunt Elva, who was born in New Jersey, who was the daughter of a Civil War veteran, becomes, in the eyes of the law, a Chinese. Then I had other family members um, who came in during the period in time in which Angel Island had just um, been created. Angel Island sometimes is called uh, the Ellis Island of the West Coast, but it is, in fact, a detention center. And so my great-grandmother... Yes, very different. And so my great-grandmother, when she arrives, she is heavily pregnant. Uh, She has to go into this detention center that is... um, you know, she's separated from her husband, uh, and the detention center is segregated, right? Um, so so um, it broke my heart when I realized that the chief medical examiner of the state was an ardent eugenicist, and he believed that the betterment of the race was best employed, eugenics was best employed at the border. So my great-grandmother had to endure humiliating physical examinations while she was in her third trimester. Mm-hmm. I, I love the um, description you have of the photo that you have of her coming through Angel Island. And it's like, a, this is not a happy woman's <laughs> picture. She's got this sort of murderous glare in her yes. eyes. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, um, imagine being at sea for close to a month in your third trimester. You're seasick and you're nauseous only to enter a facility that you're not sure when you're going to get out of. And only Chinese people really had to deal with this because of the Chinese Exclusion Act laws. And she was in a relatively privileged position by being the wife of a merchant who had papers, right? Um, Luckily, they were not uh, kept uh, in detention for more than about a week and a half. But still, not knowing when you're going to be let go um, is very difficult. And there were other people whose um, uh, uh, files I found who were also pregnant, who were there at the time, um, who spent a lot more time uh, on Angel Island. So, I mean, it was, a, it was a very difficult time for Chinese trying to come into America. Yeah, so how did you end up deciding on the people to focus on? You, as you described, and, and by the way, you, your family tree was very helpful because there were, there were moments where I would get a little bit lost because um, there's so many fascinating 
family members that were following you get completely absorbed in their life story as you're narrating them so beautifully that when we move to another person, sometimes it takes a moment to you know sure. recalibrate and figure out which part of the tree. Um, and then you can sort of see, you can definitely see there's so many other people on the tree you don't focus on. So so yeah, how did you go about selecting? Um, you know, and, and are there any family members that if you ha- had the opportunity to write a bigger book, would you put them back in? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great question because, again, there's this huge cast of characters. Um, so many different people were so fascinating to me. Right. But I knew that the frame of this book was was um, incredibly important. Right. So the frame of Chinese exclusion and the ways in which family members or or individual lives are impacted by this discriminatory legislation um, that lasted for so long on the books. Right. I I knew that that was that was an important frame. Um, And what I tried to do was just follow who were the characters, who were the family members that I was most interested in? Whose storylines did I find most compelling? Um, and, and then I also did this thing where, um, in a certain way, you can almost look at it like, yes, we're, fam- we're following these different families, but we're also looking at these different couples, Right. We learn about different individuals um, before they meet um, and then what happens uh, when they meet and get married and the ways in which their lives are affected, whether you're Chinese or you're a white person who marries into the family. Right. How how are how are their lives, um, you know, how are their lives impacted um, by, you know, this general legislation um, that has so much impact um, on them without without necessarily maybe them 100% realizing it. You know, I, I'll say that even for myself when I was growing up, I had never heard the term Chinese exclusion before. I just, it's more like I, I, I felt it, right? Um, and it was always there, um, whether it was, because my grandfather's mail came addressed to somebody else's name, right? That was one clue. You're speaking of the paper sun. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The paper sun phenomenon. Right. right, right. So my grandfather, despite the fact that he was the grandson of somebody who built the railroad that benefited the entire country, my grandfather when he came over during World War II in 1938, um, had to come over under somebody else's identity. And to me, that was particularly heartbreaking, given how proud he was um, of the work that his grandfather had done um, and how proud he was of, of just the contributions that we have made to the country. Right, yeah. Um, that is absolutely something that I think we get very clearly in the book is the ways in which the, the lives intersect with these big moments of history. You mention, um, um, I think this is, this is your great grandfather now who, um, um, tried to enlist in every war. Is this right? Yes, Um, that's right. But 
so there are these moments where you're you're taking us to remember that that there is a sense of belonging of obligation to this country um, that your ancestors had despite living in a time of exclusion and right. you know and for us to sit with that is quite profound I think yeah yeah thank you I I remember when um, I was I was looking through my great grandfather's exclusion file um, and and one of the pieces was uh, when he had naturalized. And I realized that he, and then I found it with um, my uh, grandfather on my father's side, um, Long Chen, Pop, uh, who you mentioned and knew. Um, both of them, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it in the book, but uh, it, uh, both of them actually ended up um, enlisting uh, even though they were too old, even though they were heads of households with very young children and didn't have to enlist, um, they did. And a couple of years when Chinese exclusion went off the books um, and Chinese were then able to become naturalized, um, my great-grandfather and my grandfather um, tried as quickly as possible uh, to naturalize. Um, because they felt so much that, you know, I mean, they had lived here for so long um, and they really felt so much as they were Americans. Um, and they knew how important it was to naturalize because they had lived in this country for so many decades, not being able to, not being able to vote, being completely disenfranchised. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it, it, you know, uncovering a lot of these pieces to the story for me was both heartbreaking as well as made me incredibly happy and and made me filled with quite a lot of pride when I realized what they had done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was just going to go back to your comment about that this is as much about individuals um, as it is about the couples themselves and their relationships with one another. And I was going to say, absolutely, the what I think is so interesting about what you've done also is that this is this is a period where oftentimes, um, and, it, and it makes sense because demographically, we have a lot more men coming through than, than women, and there's a lot of emphasis on the, um, the, the men in terms of their work, their organizing, um, and you cover much of this too in your book, but I think what we have not had and as as richly developed oftentimes are the lives of the women, the few yes. women who could come, and yeah. certainly the merchant wives in this case. Um, and and you just do such an amazing job rendering the lives um, of your great-grandmothers um, in terms of really giving us a sense of who they were as people. They were different in terms of class background, um, where they were from in China, mm-hmm. um, but but they become but they're such real characters, um, and and we really get a sense of their internal um, motivations, their hopes, their um, and then I think the the surprising relationship that sort of builds right, um, yeah. not to give too much away, but I but I think you just do that so beautifully, and I wanted to hear a little bit more about um, you know how how you went about trying to do that when when the history that we have been able to write have often not been able to do as much with women's voices simply because we don't have as many sources about their lives. Right, right, right. absolutely. And, and, and so it's, it's, 
it, you know, it's so difficult because, you know, even if the women were literate, like, so one of my great-grandmothers was literate. She was a nurse trained by the London Missionary Society in Hong Kong. Um, but even she didn't leave documents, or at least not any documents that were saved, right? So, um, yeah, I think that the stories of the women are so important. Um, but they, you know, oftentimes, like, in terms of written documents, um, we don't have them. So what I needed to turn to, because I knew that the lives of the women were so important, what I needed to turn to were the oral stories that my family members had told me. Um, I needed to uh, turn to, I was really lucky, right, again, going back to um, the work that local historians at small community-based organizations and institutions um, were able to do and to save those documents. Um, I was lucky that um, so many of my family members um, either wrote down, used, or like, like wrote down essays um, and, and about what life was like for them. Um, my grandfather on my chin side, Pop, was incredibly close to his mother. Um, and so he talked about her um, in his oral history. Um, he wrote, he left notes. Um, he was working on a book himself as well as an oral history. Um, and he, uh, he was working on a family story. Um, and he wanted to, he was working, he was taking notes about, on a story about his relationship with his own father. Um, and so, so, he and his brothers, um, to, at least two of his brothers, one of whom was still alive by the time I reunited with my family, and I was able to interview um, one summer out on the Jersey Shore. Uh, he was in his 90s already. Um, I was able to use these documents um, and in, in, in conjunction uh, with the oral stories that my family members had told me to breathe life um, into the women's stories. Um, it was also really interesting when, you know, because the building is so incredibly important in the story. So um, when my family members uh, all arrived uh, to New York um, in the turn of the century, um, I remember my grandmother telling me that when they they moved into this, this one building that was at the heart of the community on Mott Street. And this building was considered a luxury building uh, because it had indoor plumbing in every single unit. Um, and all of the merchant families rushed to move into this building. And the thing that amazed me was when I learned that, in fact, the two sides of my family that I had never seen before even in the same room, because the estrangement um, between my families was so vast. I was amazed when I found out that, in fact, my family members generations before had been upstairs, downstairs neighbors from each other in this building on Mott Street. So how old were you when you realized that? And, and that, yeah, that, well, that was quite the revelation in the book when you, when yeah. you share that with us. I, I was an adult. <laughs> 
when I when I discovered mm. this because uh, I was an adult. I was in my twenties uh, when I met my father for the first time, and. I should say throughout my childhood, I was always asking questions. I was always like that nosy person or that nosy child in the family that was asking like myriad questions about who we were and where we came from. And in fact, that never stopped. Um, and so it's, it's maybe not a mistake uh, that I was a journalist for a number of years. Um, I, I, I teach journalism and, uh, you know, narrative uh, journalism and, and nonfiction. Um, and so, you know, uh, when I met my father for the first time when I was in my 20s, he was the one who pointed out the building to me and and told me that he was born there. And then I remember I was talking to interviewing um, my uh, my maternal grandmother, um, and I found out that in fact she had been born right upstairs. And so, 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 so that you, you you know it's 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 one thing to have to be interested in um, and to have a frame about. You know these these larger historical forces at work, um, but but to have to have a setting, right? That's so specific, where all of your characters have lived or visited at some point in, in, in you know in their young lives, or maybe continue to live there for you know um, over seventy years. Right um, is nothing short of incredible. So um, there's a way that the building that my family lived in on Mott Street um, really feels like felt like um, it was such a gift, um, and it was a place of refuge for my family. But it was such a gift for me uh, to realize how important this building was to our family. Um, I kind of feel like. The building's DNA is in my bones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's like the the a big contradiction, right? On the one hand, it it is this amazing um, building in terms of the families and the lives um, that started there and then proceeded to go elsewhere, grow, thrive. Um, but it was clearly a space that was created because of exclusion, because of the 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 inability for for many Chinese to find. Um, um, lodging, a residence in other parts of the city. And what was interesting to me also is that uh, looking at the book, I was reminded that everyone referred to it as the new building, um, yes. and they still did in the in the 90s when I was still working there, <laughs> which was so funny because when you look at the building, it does not look like a new building. Right. But, but right. all the old-timers – would call it the new building, Sun Lao. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and the building was built in 1915. So, so by right. that time, <laughs> you know, it was like 80 somewhat years later. They're still calling it the new building. Um, some things yes, never change. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but that building, and in terms of its location, it, it is like the prime stage for everything in Chinatown. It has an amazing vantage point, as you describe, of being able to see so much. And then I think you're one of – is it the Chin family that had the store across the street? Um, yes. That also – yes, there's a um, – that was one of the things that's really wonderful about this, the book is that you really get a sense of the daily lives of – of the Chinese in the in the period that you're talking about, whether it's like the the work life 
um, certainly the leisure life, you definitely describe some of those things. Um, which I was going to ask you about. Like, did you did you have any moments where you felt like, uh, oh, I don't know, should I talk about gambling or opium or things that you know have been these stereotypes of Chinatown and how to handle that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I really, I, I paused um, because I thought I, 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 I paused about the opium. Um, references um, and involvement that certain family members had. Um, but uh, it is important to contextualize it that um, when they were doing, uh, so when they were originally uh, importing um, certain uh, narcotic drugs, um, as my father, uh, you know, as my father told me, they weren't, it wasn't actually illegal back then. It ended up becoming illegal a little bit later on. Um, So, and the other thing is, um, you know, I really, I paused for a great while, too, um, in terms of talking about, you know, the ways in which um, my family members had to circumnavigate the exclusion laws, right, the ways in which they entered the country. Um, And I really thought about, you know, how is someone else outside of the community, right? Readers out of the side of the community, what are they going to think about this, right? Um, this reinforces stereotypes um, of Chinese people like being suspicious and, 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 and don't, don't want to talk about things and this and that. And what I realized, what was so important, um, was actually something that Pop Chin, my grandfather, said um, to uh, to a historian, um, and 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 what he said was, if they didn't make the laws this way, people wouldn't have had to lie, but because they made the laws this way, people had to lie in order to get in. So. I thought, okay, you know, he's contextualized it for me, and um, you know, my my one of my great hopes um, in writing this book uh, really is that folks understand um, what, in a very personal and visceral way, the impact of really restrictive, unfair, discriminatory legislation and how that impacts families, um, children, right, mothers and fathers, um, and has, has impact, right, even on us today. So um, I think it's incredibly important for us to, to consider that. Um, and and it, was, it was actually one of the great joys of the book, um, knowing that, you know, it would be through my family members that I could tell a personal story about immigration so that people could really understand um, what the impact of discriminatory legislation was on a family. Yeah, you. Th- I think the story, as it unfolds over generations, really shows that um, you one could get out of the 1940s, and as you say, the repeal happens in 1943, but it's not as though a magic wand is waved and and it, all that history goes away. It still continues to impact the lives of certainly that generation that's trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to go from excluded to not excluded? And yet 
for some, citizenship doesn't is not even is not is difficult um, because it still goes back to having to prove one's entry into the country being lawful,、right. um, other kinds of documents. So it's not a magic cure at all, and then it continues to shape the the everyday life of so many that you describe.、Um, I'm just curious in terms of、uh, as you said, going back to the family estrangement in your. Um, efforts to really uncover your your family's history and then know more about your father.、Um, as you were doing the research and as it was becoming clear that you were writing a book, what was the reaction of everybody around you about、um, what you were doing? So uh, it, that would depend upon who I was talking to, right?、Okay. So there are、yeah. there were some people who are like, "Do not air the dare, the dirty laundry," right? And and, and fair、mm. enough, right?、Um, there are some people who.、Um, Even today, won't willingly talk to me,、um, and and that's all right. I accept that it's not easy having a writer in the family,、um, but there are other people who are totally fascinated by this.、Um, and when I would talk to folks like my father, who was really reticent.、Um, About talking about a lot of the family history,、um, but who eventually ended up、uh, talking to me about it.、Um, what I had to remind people that was that it wasn't just about us, right, as individuals、um, and any particular individual in the family. That this is a much larger story that touches upon a larger legacy of exclusion、um, and how it impacted. A large segment of the U.S. population during that time period. So, so that I think that I think helps a bit. But、um, it's never easy, you know, writing a family memoir. It's 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 it's. It's kind of hard for everybody around, so、um, you know. I, I completely understood, you know, if, if some folks、um, were were more reticent than others. Have you have you had family members read the book and give you feedback on what they are thinking of you, it? You know what?、Um, in with other books,、um, my book Eating Wildly, which was a food memoir that came out in twenty fourteen,、um, with that book. I did offer、um, fa- different fa-、uh, certain family members、um, the chance to read it. With this book, I did not.、Um, most of the people that I'm writing about have long since passed away, so I don't feel like anybody's feelings are going to get hurt, and certainly nobody's legal status is going to be impacted by this book.、Um, So no. So the answer to that, Professor Liu, is no. I have not offered other family members、um, the opportunity to read this. When the reader reads it, this is the same time that the family will read it. So this will be interesting for you to to report back on at some point.、I、yes.、Think. Yes.、Um, yeah, yeah. Ask ask me after next week. <laughs> right.、Um, I'm curious, as you said, that some some family members were more available to you in terms of talking and having wonderful stories, or or at least trying、um, to to put the pieces together for you.、Um, I'm curious about Elva's family. Were you able to、um, 
be able to be in contact with them? Had she been remembered by yes. her descendants? I mean, she yes. did not have children herself. That's right. Yeah, so I was really curious about that. Yeah. Yes. So that was a major moment, a major coup in the research. Um, Aunt Elva, you'll remember, was the white woman who married into the family whose uh, citizenship were, was revoked um, a couple of years later. Um, and she was transformed into a Chinese on paper. Um, I was searching for her family for the longest time. Uh, <laughs> I I found some of the I like found references to them um, off of uh, family databases. Uh, so I, I I I put out emails. Um, you know they 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 went into some file uh, that that nobody ever saw. Right. Um, I'm really embarrassed to say that um, an aunt of mine. Uh, was like, well, I had asked an aunt of mine um, if she could help because she had family members in a particular part of Queens that I knew that uh, Aunt Elva's family was living in, right? That, that was the person to whom the emails were, were just going into a bucket that nobody ever saw. Um, this aunt said to me, well, have you tried just Googling it? And so she did a Google search. <laughs> And she got a phone number. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was so embarrassed, right? Here I am, former journalist, you know, um, professor of journalism. This is the first thing my undergrads would do. I did not do that, right? And there it was. You didn't just ask the Google. I t- <laughs> Not so. I, I, was, I was trying to be like a model professor, right? Um, anyway, but but um, so we found it um, through that channel, that extended family member. I found the other person in Aunt Elva's family um, who is the genealogist, um, and I met. So so these were um, extended family members um, through Elva's brother, um, and they were able to tell me stories. And absolutely, the family had stories and remembered Aunt Elva. And part of it was because she had married a Chinese person, right? Um, It was a really big deal um, for the family in 1903. so, so yes, so I got extremely lucky, um, and that helped open up a whole section of the book uh, about a major character, um, and so <laughs> so grateful uh, to to everybody who helped out with that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and so, is your sense that then your uncle was a part of Aunt Elva's fam- extended family as um, as much as she was a part of? Um, your family. Um, my sense of it is that th- he was a part of her Elvis family, but only uh, w- with limits. I know for certain mm-hmm. that they um, they did go to family events, um, but he was still. It was still hard for them. Um, it was difficult in those days. You know, interracial marriages were. Quite quite rare. Um, It was uh, illegal in many states out West and in the Midwest, right? Luckily for my family, uh, for Aunt Elva and my uncle, it was not illegal in New York or Connecticut where they got married. Um, But um, I feel like 
Aunt Elva was really warmly embraced in our family, um, more so than um, my uncle was embraced by hers. Right. Yeah. It it still speaks to, nonetheless, I think, when reading the book, the possibilities of mobility in terms of that interaction, the back and forth, and, and it definitely helps to continue to push back against the idea of, of Chinese being just simply in these enclaves and, um, you know, and no one was interested in finding connections or, or pushing forth and um, and we haven't even gotten into the Chinese Equal Rights League, oh, which yeah. is a really important uh, part of Chinese American history, Asian American history. And maybe that's a good place for us to end, I think, is to is your, um, you know, your uncovering of this really amazing history that your um, great grandfather and great uncles were all involved in, in terms of um, really trying to push for and lobby for rights for Chinese Americans during the height of exclusion. Yeah. So, so um, I remember when I first learned about it, um, there was uh, uh, there there was a writer. Okay. So this goes back a little bit. Um, there was a writer for the Ford newspaper, the Jewish newspaper, um, who contacted me because I was writing about, I had written about Uncle Jack, right, um, in an online Asian American women's magazine. It was just, it was a personal uh, essay um, about the family. And he was like, did you realize that your family members had done such um, incredible civic engagement in Chinatown in a period in time in which, um, you know, it was it was several decades into Chinese exclusion uh, and they weren't able to vote. Um, so they were completely disenfranchised, right, in, in terms of the political process. Um, did you realize that this was going on? And I said, no, I did not. Um, so I had, though, heard of the Chinese Equal Rights League, um, and Wang Chinfu, who was um, the big uh, proponent uh, who had created the Chinese Equal Rights League. And, um, it, and, and so, so this was um, a league of, um, of merchant Chinese across the country um, who were lobbying to stop the continuation of Chinese exclusion on the books. Um, and so they got together in New York, um, in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, um, even in Boston um, to, to gather documents, gather signatures, um, speaking out against the continuation of exclusion um, in 1892. Um, I will let you read the book in order to find out um, what happened, but I was incredibly moved by the work that they had done. Um, and I later on, um, you know, found more documents um, and read more books uh, where actually uh, that writer from the Forge newspaper, Scott Seligman, uh, ended up writing an entire book about um, Wang Chenfu, who was um, the person who helped create, um, you know, the Chinese exclusion, uh, the Chinese Equal Rights League. Um, so, right. so, yes. So, so there was all of that. Yeah, I think this is a great place to end to sort of remind 
um, all of us just how how much uh, the Chinese in this period of exclusion um, explored so many avenues, were politically engaged and, and vocal and pushed back against exclusion. Very, very powerfully done in your book, Mott Street. Um, Professor Chen, I want to thank you for your time um, and thank you for the book. This was uh, really a pleasure to read and engage with, um, and I wish you best of luck with it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. 